Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. The city of Worcester is the second largest city in the entirety of New England, just behind Boston. With that size comes an incredible diversity. Over a fifth of its residents were born outside the USA. Like all large American cities, its spoils have not trickled down evenly. And not only is its median income $8,000 less than the US average, but ethnic, historic and racial lines see big differences across demographics. Stephanie Williams was recently brought in as the city's chief diversity officer, a role that's beginning to arise more and more across local government. Today we talk about why this time is different for diversity in Worcester, how to have difficult conversations in the workplace, and what the end goal of inclusion actually is. Please enjoy my conversation with Stephanie Williams. Stephanie, awesome to welcome you onto the show. To start off, without getting super political, because that's not what the show's all about, but on a cultural and societal level, something I've been thinking about is, I guess, is the US experiment, so to say, even salvageable? You know, do times like the past 12 months demonstrate that we're actually making progress or rather how fundamentally dysfunctional the country is at its roots? So I, I think that's a great question. And first of all, I want to say thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be uh, involved in this podcast. So in terms of have we made progress, I definitely think we've made progress around the area of equity. We're having more conversations in this area that we may not have had in the past. If you look at the administration, there's a very historic executive order that was put forward called uh, calling for the whole government equity agenda. And that, for me, presents an extraordinary opportunity to meet the long-standing challenges that we've faced to build a better America where every ha- everyone has an equal opportunity to thrive. So, yeah, I would definitely say that the past 14 months have shown us that there is progress being made in the area, just from conversation alone, just from something that's been so hidden and discussed in small groups by by people who are impacted daily to now where it's mainstream media, mainstream conversation, there's more advocates in, in a lot of new voices. So the U.S. is obviously extremely geographically and, and culturally diverse. And the word equity and diversity and inclusion is going to mean something completely different in Oklahoma as it will to California and indeed Massachusetts, where you are in Worcester. What does equity mean specifically in Massachusetts? And what are some of maybe the unique challenges that you guys are facing in the Northeast that may not be replicated elsewhere in the country? Great question. So I, I don't think I can speak for all of Massachusetts with answering that, but I would have to say for us as a municipality, we are looking at equity as a whole, equity versus equality. And so really analyzing data and information, looking at the structural root causes of things. And so our focus for the municipality for the city of Worcester is primarily racial equity. So you have equity and inequality, right? When I say those words, I think the best way to kind of share a visual of what that looks like is, you know, an example of shoes, right? So if I if I have people take off their shoes in a space and, and you have shoe sizes from size six to 10 to 12 to whatever the size may be, and I say, throw, throw all of your shoes in a circle, uh, put on some blindfolds and everybody reach in and grab a shoe. 
And your, your job is to put that shoe on and make it fit, right? That's kind of a metaphor um, often used as equity. So equality ensures that everyone has a pair of shoes, but equity ensures that everyone has a pair of shoes that actually fit them. So it's not about, well, I gave them the opportunity or there's been access. It's about making sure that access and that opportunity fits for that specific individual. Don't take this as you me putting words in your mouth, but it seems like to take on a role like this uh, it's based on a first principle that something about the current situation, the current system is broken and needs changing. I think that's pretty fair to say. Now, given the importance of the issues that you're dealing with, how did you personally come to the perspective that this is best addressed through a more methodical, organizational, institutional approach rather than what we're seeing now, perhaps more activists and grassroots, and I guess an extension of that even more confrontational way of doing things? Um, that's a great question. Uh, so the reality is when you're ingrained in the institutional, you need to learn how to navigate the environment in which you're in. Um, and I think grassroots approaches are, are great. But if you also think about grassroots, that term in and of itself is a bit nebulous, right? And so what does that look like? It can look different for different people and different things. And so for me, taking an institutional approach is, is a lot more strategic, a lot more aligned. It's really thinking about what levels of accountability are there. And so you have to know the process. I know externally, a lot of the community and a lot of people are looking for immediate results, right? Like just demand it and just do it. And if we look at a municipality, if we look at institutions, and if we look at systems or things, systems were designed strategically right? And they're set up to do certain things. And in order to dismantle whatever it was to set up that may have an adverse effect or cause harm, you then have to understand that system and break it down strategically piece by piece. You can't just go in and destroy it, especially when we're talking about government, we're talking about policy, we're talking about practice, we're talking about procedure. And so although grassroots activism is really great, we have to trust the process and respect the kind of levels of organizational structures that have been put in place and learn how to navigate navigate that to break it down. So when you go out into the community and try and communicate that, and you know, oftentimes these people will be justifiably extremely in, annoyed about a specific issue or uh, whatever it might be, how do you communicate that oftentimes it may need to be that more slower, methodical, by-the-book approach that will actually drive lasting change when these people just want change right now? Um, so, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of people who are frustrated, but they have to understand that this kind of work is not overnight, right? Racism and these policies and these practices where people have been oppressed, marginalized, and minoritized, these systems weren't, they, they didn't kind of just create overnight. They just didn't bloom. It's years of the making, right? So it's ingrained in the fabric of who we are as an American society. And so dismantling them in a very methodical, intentional, strategic way is definitely going to take time. And it does, it's an investment. And again, because you need to be strategic, it's not textbook. If it were that easy, then I think somebody would be super rich right now, some author out there <laughs> who, have, who has created this book that has all of the answers. You really have to respect the environment that you're in and the communities in which you serve. And so what may work here for the city of Worcester may not work at another municipality. And so you have to truly have an understanding of what is that you're trying to do, the reason why you're trying to do it, and for whom you're trying to do it for. And so for me, having people understand that this is transformative and not transactional, we're not putting a Band-Aid on it. You know, we're not triaging. We're actually 
opening up the system. We're trying to detect what the issues are and trying to attack the disease as a whole, so to speak, and not just band-aid it and give it antibiotic and say, hopefully this works and this will work for a short period of time. And so I think when people have an understanding that this is very intentional and critical work that needs to be done and only time is going to help make sure that there are really transformative mechanisms in place, then I think there's a better understanding, especially for me in this space as a, as a cultural humility practitioner, is really meeting people where they are and explaining to them the why behind it and how it works. And not everybody is happy with that answer and not everybody's comfortable with that answer. But if we are going to, to really create some something that's intentional, there needs to be a framework behind it. And there needs to be time, commitment, effort, funding, human capital, all invested in it to create a very different space. So before jumping into, let's say, the operational weeds of your day-to-day, I started that last question asking about, take the example of someone in the community that's really up in arms about these specific issues. Now let's go, and I'm sure you run into this type often to the complete other side of the spectrum, where people look around and say, what are you talking about? You know, the society is equal. There's no racism. We're totally fine. Beyond just appealing to people's, I guess, good nature, which is always going to be ever-changing and consistent, is there a purely logical case for building diversity? Are there what you'd call competitive advantages that organizations like Worcester will see by placing it as a strategic priority? That's a great question. Uh, I couldn't help to help to chuckle a little bit. So, so we're not necessarily, I think here's the misconception. We're not building diversity. Diversity already exists, right? Diversity even not just in our city, but really in in all cities. And so, and actually Worcester is, we've just realized because the census has just come out. So we are an extremely diverse city in comparison to other cities within the country and especially within New England. And so, and when I say diverse, it's not just racial and ethnically diverse, um, diversity is all encompassing. So whether it's socioeconomics, whether it's whether it's education, you know, whatever it is that you're talking about around diversity, we're already diverse. We're not creating it. What we're doing is we're acknowledging it, we're recognizing it, and what we are building is inclusivity and equity, so that everybody feels like this is an environment, or so that it is not just a feeling, but it is an environment that everybody really has the opportunity to really you know, live in structures that want to build people up, right? Upward mobility for all and making it, you know, so that it's not as difficult for some populations versus the other. And that, you know, make, that's part of making sure that people and, and voices are in the room that we may not have thought of before. It's making sure that there's a variety of diverse um, voices in the room making these decisions. And so, you know, when we talk about diversity, diversity does not always equal inclusion. And so what we're building here is something that's going to help move diversity along because the diversity is there regardless of, of whether we recognize it or not. Let's I, maybe zoom out a little bit and would love for you to take us through your time at Worcester. So you've been there, I believe you came into the office last year. Talk us through what your mandate is. I know there's a bit of a change in terms of you're now reporting directly to the city manager, which is a change as to how it was previously. Do you mind telling us why that's why that change has occurred and, and basically what your day-to-day looks like? Sure. So as a chief diversity officer, your day-to-day definitely changes. It's not kind of, you know, like a typical department where you know what you're going to approach every day that you come into office. It's, it's, 
It's not uh, sterile, that's for sure. But part of my role is I'm I'm responsible for leading the city manager's diversity agenda. So in areas around change management, strategic planning, strategy development, talent sourcing, diversity recruitment and retention. And so part of my role is to really look at where we've been, right? So you have to have the historical context. You have to have the data. Uh, In order to be a chief diversity officer, you definitely have to be a data savvy storyteller. For those, as you alluded to earlier, that think, you know, we're in a post-racial America and diversity, what is this for? And this is all political correctness and we don't need any of this. And so having that data, which is critical, really helps present why we need this kind of work to be done. And so part of my everyday is looking at our policies and our practices and our procedures. And a lot of what I do is very internal Um, So I'm looking at our workforce. Do we need to diversify our workforce? What does our workforce look like? Is there pay equity throughout? So as a CDO, I'm kind of a disruptor. I'm expected to challenge the status quo, right? So in terms of inclusion, uh, although it's a nice sounding word that may many embrace and wish to see become a reality in our municipalities, the term itself inherently implies a disruption to the status quo. And some people don't like that. And so my my goal is to give people an understanding. You know, my goal is not to alter people's reality, right? I've learned that a long time ago. I've learned not to deny people of their own reality. My goal is not to convince people, you know, that they need this and why they need this. Reality is data shows, especially in a workforce, um, how diversity can improve the workforce, how it can improve productivity, how it can really improve retention of your employees and, and how it impacts those in which you serve. And so... I'm really an influencer and I'm I'm a champion of this work, right? And and I'm very much so a pragmatic disruptor. So I'm the one who's bold enough to ask the questions about status quo, shatter the biases, so to speak, to create equal opportunities. And at the same time, though, I'm wise enough to know when to slow down the pace and to change the focus on core priorities. And so you can't win every battle, you can't fight every battle, but you have to know when you when when the best time is to step in to create change. And the caveat to that is I do have to say for me as as a um, public servant, you know, promoting diversity and inclusion, it's not voluntary. It's in this it's necessary, right? It's a necessary principle, especially as a public servant and as a municipality. And we really can't cherry pick when and where to amplify DEI efforts based on, you know, the flawed business case, right? It's, it's so much bigger than the business case. So we need to view diversity, equity, inclusion as a moral responsibility. And I think only through framing it that way, we can do better to contribute to creating a more equitable and inclusive workplace, which definitely matriculates into society. I'm sure as you go about your day-to-day working at the city, you probably see endless examples or or endless situations where you think equity needs to be brought to the forefront and addressed. But, you know, you are spending ultimately, I don't want to say political capital, but maybe organizational capital every time you do choose to maybe uh, take a, a hard stance on something. So how do you decide colloquially which hills are worth dying on? How do you pick your battles? a great question. I would have to say for me as a public servant, I am a decision maker and I have a duty and a responsibility to put the public's interests ahead of all others, including my own when it comes to decision making. You can't, I couldn't do this work successfully, successfully. I can't talk about equity. I can't talk about inclusion if I'm not including those who 
are closest to the subject matter and, and who are having a lived experience around it. And so really hearing and actively listening to what the concerns are from within the community around these issues, I think is the most important. And that's how I decide how, how to be a disruptor and, and to what topics I'm going to take on is, is what's affecting our community the most, what has the biggest adverse effect and where can I based on my professional competencies and skill sets, where can I pivot and make a change for the better, whatever that looks like. Um, but how can I contribute in a positive way so that people feel heard, they feel valued, and their concerns are being addressed? In a, uh, a previous conversation we'd had, you'd expressed a, a real desire to move away from, I think, what you called the food festivals and fabric style of diversity work towards something that's more meaningful. Can you dig into that a little bit further? I've been doing this work for, for quite some time when it wasn't, you know, now you see a lot of uh, post job postings for chief diversity officers and you see a lot of corporations and organizations implementing that role. And I was doing this work about 15 years ago when it wasn't a popular thing to do and, and when that title barely existed. And so I found that even back then when I first started, it was really a very much ornamental position. It was a check the box position where a lot of people who went into that role were tokenized. It was tokenism. Just so an organization can say, listen, look, see, so it was kind of optical that we have somebody in this in this space doing this work. But those people typically don't have the resources and the manpower, so to speak, or, or the staff, I should say, and the funding needed to support the real progress of this position. So it tends to end up being a position of food, fun, and fabric where you show up, you know, you have events around specific cultural heritage months and, and you have things that make people feel good about themselves that where you're breaking bread and, and there's a lot of entertainment. That's the food, fun, and fabric part of it where it's, it's entertainment and nothing more than that. It's nothing more than smoke and mirrors and the true nitty gritty, hardcore work and these difficult conversations aren't being had. And so I think, you know, it's so much easier to present that there's this person in this position where, again, it's the food, fun and fabric and a lot harder to sit with yourself uh, as an organization or an institution to say, hey, you know, if we're not willing to be vulnerable, right, and, and drop our script internally on how, you know, how will we ever be able to create this new policy and practice to advance equity for the entire community? And so, that's what I mean when I say moving away from the food, fun, and fabric. I'm not here at a chief diversity, as a chief diversity officer to recognize holidays and, and put on luncheons and have these edutainment or entertainment um, showcases. It's, it's so much bigger than that. And that's where I'm at. So without getting into extreme specifics with respect to names and, and stuff like that, in the past year, are you able to walk us through a difficult conversation that you had internally? And more broadly, how do you approach the concept of having a difficult conversation? Because it really is part and parcel with your role. Yeah. I mean, for the for the sake of confidentiality, right, and, and not airing any dirty laundry, so to speak, I guess I would have to say every day I'm having difficult conversations. Again, this work is not easy. And then you need to justify why you're doing this work for a lot of people. It's very different. I was just saying to a colleague today, my office is very different than being in a business office where it's transactional or being in the law office where it's transactional, human resources where it's policy is transactional. My, my position is very interdependent 
being a new employee, I've been in the space for eight months now. So being a new employee to a space where people have been here for quite some time, and there's already an unspoken culture created, coming in as a chief diversity officer, where you're a strategic executor, around, you're having difficult conversations constantly because of the interdependence of this job. And so um, explaining to people who it's their area of expertise. And again, I'm no expert in diversity, equity, inclusion, but it is my area of expertise. So going into, let's say, for example, a human resources department and saying, listen, the way we write our job postings just don't meet the needs of where we are today. It's not current and it's not best practicing. It's innate in people to feel the sense of they get on the fight or flight or defense mode. Like, you know, this is my area of expertise. This is what I know. This is how we've always done it. And so, again, having to take that humanistic approach where you're saying, listen, I respect your area of professionalism. I respect your knowledge. But, you know, here's some research, right? So everything that I do has to have data to back it up. Here's some research on best practices and human resources. This is not just my opinion. This is not just something I'm pulling out of the air. And that's why it's important to have a lot of networks, right, that you can rely on as resources. And so here's some data, here's some information as to why we really need to re-examine how we're posting our job or even writing our job descriptions, right? There's too much text. It's not uh, inclusive. Um, it's not palatable. It's, it's written in a format that's not easy to read, especially now when a lot of people are passive um, job seekers who are looking on their phones or their tablets. That's a difficult conversation when you go into somebody's area of, of expertise and try to tell them, hey, let's talk about the possibility of readjusting the way we do so that we meet the current time so that we're current um, and so that we're looking at best practices and that we have some core competency areas that we're, we're moving towards with all of our staff. And, and maybe even, you know, part of that might be upskilling our staff, right? Like if we can upskill our staff so that we are more current, that's just better for us. Not only are we giving them more professional learning and development opportunities, right, to creating a stronger workforce, but now we're more marketable in what we're doing, right? And it makes sense. And again, it's current. So let's fast forward maybe five years. You've been in the role for six years at that point. And let's say in this fantasy land, everything that you wanted to happen has happened. What is working at the city of Worcester look like? And what does the community of Worcester look like from an equity and inclusion standpoint? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. I like how you said in this fantasy world, the response is, you know, I think it's very altruistic, but I think it's very doable. I don't think it's a fantasy. I think we, we use that as a facade, right? This is hard work, but we can get there. That cannot be our scapegoat and that can't be our crush, right? Which is so, for, so it is so for so many organizations. And so we make it a fantasy. We make it seem unattainable because we have to put true effort. We have to be able to be vulnerable. And that's as human beings. And you don't typically find that in the workplace where people are willing to do that. And until we get to that level where we can be vulnerable and say, hey, we don't know what this looks like. And again, I can give you a textbook answer and say, this is where we're going to be. This is what it looks like. This is how it's going to work. But that's not genuine and that's not authentic to the work that we are, we're trying to do here. We don't know. We're going to have blind spots. We're going to have areas where we don't do so well, but we just pick everything back up and try again. There's no manuscript. There's no blueprint, so to speak. Um, and so 
What that looks like for me in five years is that every department in every office is doing this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, every day in everything that they do. They're asking themselves these questions. They're being more inclusive. They definitely have more diverse departments that have uh, voices and have an opinion on, on things that are being done. That, for me, would be what I'd like to see. I think any movement towards progress is success, um, even if it's very small things, baby steps. But I think for me in five years, it shouldn't be, you know, if there's a, a question around equity or a question around inclusion, if people are still saying, I don't know, go to the chief diversity officer, go, go to the executive office of diversity and inclusion, that's not my thing, then we haven't gotten to where we need to be. And we need to unpack why, right? We need to examine and put a mic, put ourselves under a, a microscope, so to so to speak, and ask ourselves why we're not there yet. What have we? What could we have done better? And what are we missing? My ideal would be that everybody has an understanding and everybody's doing the work, whether they they agree with it or not. It would be part of the culture of who we are as a municipality, which I think it should be. We're here to serve our communities. Uh, it's not about our comfort level. It's about us being humble enough to take the reins and move forward in the unknown to make progress towards the better, whatever that looks like. I, uh, I really like that answer. You're basically saying it's your ideal status. There would no longer be a need for a chief diversity officer role because it's simply baked into the organization. I'm, uh, I'm curious on your answer here to our, our traditional closing question, A, for your role, and B, because you're relatively new to local government. What is one accepted truth to you, Stephanie? of local government that you personally believe is incorrect? <laughs> that, yeah, that was my hard question. So we're an organization, right? We're part of the systemic. We talk about institutional, structural, systemic racism, right? So as an institution, which is a municipality, we have structures in place that are part of the system, right? Which is all what we're trying to break down and address so that there's more equity. So as a municipality, we are built and designed exactly the way we should be built and designed exactly the way it was intended for. So let me let me rescind that. I said the way we should know exactly what it was intended for to keep some people out and to allow some people privileges and advantage that others don't have, right? So when we talk about government, the reality is that from its inception of our country, government at the local, regional, state, federal level has all played a role in creating and maintaining inequities, whatever that looks like. I guess I would say as I'm processing it and speaking it out, uh, one accepted truth of local government that I think is incorrect would be that there is no, but this isn't a truth, actually. It's a myth that I'd like to debunk. So I'm, I'm thinking quite the opposite. No, you're in the right track. Well, I think when we talk about compassion, right, and when we talk about we talk about justice for all and we the people and you know being created equal, people are wondering what the heck does government have to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion for the community, right? They they don't see the connection. And when I say that, I mean people primarily in the community. This is what I've heard. And I think people, you know, think that. It's the people themselves that create the change. But the reality is because government has created these laws, we instilled these laws. It's the people that then took these written laws and, and put it into action. But we developed them as a government. And so it is our responsibility to be involved. It is our responsibility to break it down. And by putting something on paper doesn't mean, poof, you fixed it and it's gone. There's, there's actually not necessarily a fix to this, but 
current inequities that we see today are sustained by historical legacies and structures and systems that repeat patterns of exclusion. And so we do have a space as a local government in this work. And we not only do we have a space, we have an obligation as public and civic, civil servants. It's an obligation. There should be no question behind it. And again, the business case for DEI should be out the window in this particular field. It's because we are a people business dealing with people at all times. And because of that, and in our power as a local government to dismantle these policies and practices, we need to take the reins, so to speak, and utilize that in a way that serves our communities and our society. Fantastic. One of the most thought-provoking conversations we've had so far, Stephanie. So really appreciate your time, all of the extremely important work you're doing there at Worcester. And uh, I guess best of luck for the foreseeable future. Thank you. If a lot of that didn't make sense and I was rambling, please circle back to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll do. We'll point them in your direction. (laughs) Yes, please. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.